This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the August 4th edition of the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Global News Review. I'm Pat Ryan, and I'm joined today by Ambassador Dick Bowers and Dr. Breck Walker. Um, good to see you, you guys. Uh, thanks for joining today. Good and to be here. Good to be here. And we, uh, we're going to, um, before we start, uh, talk about a couple of things coming up at the World Affairs Council. Uh, tomorrow evening at 8 p.m., uh, we will be having a global young professionals happy hour with uh, Alan DeBose, a diplomat in residence uh, for the South region of the United States. So it's an informal meeting. You can talk with um, Mr. DeBose about uh, his service in the Foreign Service in the State Department and uh, like-minded young professionals in Nashville. That's tomorrow at 8 p.m. You can go to tnwac.org to, uh, to uh, register for that event. Uh, we also have uh, election 2020 programs coming up over the, uh, the fall leading up to the presidential debate at our partner uh, Belmont University. That's on October 22nd. But leading up to that, we'll have a series of programs starting with uh, former Defense Secretary William Perry and Plowshares Tom Colina talking about nuclear proliferation and then a series of panels about uh, the critical issues that Americans should know about in preparation for the election. And finally, we uh, are joining together with uh, six other World Affairs Councils uh, to bring a special two-night program on September 2nd and September 3rd on uh, the COVID uh, crisis. Uh, we've uh, pulled together a collection of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty journalists from around the world, from places like China, Russia, India, and elsewhere, as well as uh, industry, uh, pharmaceutical industry experts, and others in how to deal with uh, the COVID crisis, the race for the fact vaccine, and so forth. So put those on uh, your calendar. You can find uh, the information for those things on tnwac.org slash calendar. And I think, uh, Dick, we're going to uh, get into our uh, topics for today. Okie doke. Well, we're going to do our five usual topics. Uh, and I think it's going to be an interesting program. We start with the global COVID update, as kind of usual. And then we're going to pivot over to warhead diplomacy. What's going on with North Korea? And how are they moving ahead in their weapons programs? And then we go to the other side of the world, to Germany, and a GI Aufwiedersehen. The Trump administration is pulling troops out of Germany, and why and where and how come? And Dr. Breck will lead us on that discussion. And then we go down to the edge of NATO, Turkey, a NATO member since the 50s, but there are some tensions rising, and we'll talk about those. And finally, the passing of John Hume, who more than any one single person brought peace to the Northern Ireland issues. So that's our schedule for today. Terrific. Okay, Breck, you're up with the uh, What in the World weekly quiz question. Okay, thanks, Pat. I want to remind everybody that uh, we have a weekly quiz. It comes out on Monday. You can access it through the website or if you uh, get the TINWAC uh, newsletter. And as well, the four weekly winners during the month are eligible for a prize at the end of the month uh, if you are a member of TINWAC. So, uh, please, uh, uh, please play every week if you would. Today's question is, uh, as you can see, the head of SpaceX, Elon Musk, recently tweeted support for a theory that this ancient site was built by aliens. A minister from that country invited Musk to visit to see evidence that they were man-made, in fact. And the, uh, so this ancient site is at A, Machu Picchu in Peru, B, uh, the pyramids in Egypt, C. I'm going to let uh, I'm going to let Ambassador Bowers pronounce C. Chichen <laughs> Itza. It's a Mayan word in Mexico. And Ephesus in uh, Turkey. So well, uh, we'll have you at the end of the program. I, I think we sh we should uh, let everybody know that uh, having Ambassador Bowers chime in with that one doesn't suggest that that's may or may not be the correct answer. So you're <laughs> you're you're, you're exactly. on your own there. Well said, Bowers. 
Okay, um, uh, up next, uh, we are jumping into uh, our first topic, which is uh, actually, uh, before we get into our first topic, this is not one of our news topics today, but uh, you may have seen in the news that in Beirut, Lebanon, there was a uh, explosion in the port area. Uh, it was uh, quite an impressive uh, uh, amount of whatever it was uh, exploding there. Initially, there was a, a fire and a gray smoke plume and then uh, as the video rolled on, a tremendous blast of uh, flames and, and smoke and a mushroom cloud rose over uh, that portion of the city. And you can see uh, the extent of the blast and uh, what uh, the result was in the, uh, the area uh, of the port. You can see in the initial uh, picture on the left there where the, the smoke um, is rising that, that uh, there are some fairly tall buildings in the area and then uh, afterwards, uh, you can see the scope of the damage. Uh, so we, uh, we note that uh, Lebanon is in the midst of financial and political turmoil. Uh, no indication of, of what this is related to. Um, it, uh, it, it appears to be uh, munitions or some high explosives in the port area, perhaps in a warehouse being uh, brought into Lebanon. Um, there's uh, always uh, concern about the armed shipments into Lebanon to Hezbollah um, and, and so forth. So we'll, we'll keep our eye on that story. Um, we're going to uh, jump into topic one, the COVID update. And uh, just looking at the numbers, the, uh, the WHO is uh, concerned that uh, the numbers are still going up. And they've uh, renewed the call that, uh, that the, uh, the COVID-19 issue is, uh, is still a public health emergency of international concern, which is a formal designation uh, under the international health regulations. You can see the, uh, the numbers there, how quickly um, the, the global infection rate is rising uh, around the world. And uh, a couple of the, uh, the highlights of the report from the WHO includes the effort of uh, the WHO to send a epidemiological team to China, to Wuhan, uh, to lay the groundwork for studies into the origins of the virus. Uh, so they've, uh, they've concluded the initial work and they're gonna continue uh, to investigate the first cases in Wuhan, which uh, is an important step to understanding uh, how the pandemic uh, broke out and, and uh, probably how to prevent future outbreaks of that sort. Uh, but uh, the WHO is, is concerned about the hotspots. India has reported 50,000 cases a day for the fifth day in a row. And that reflects the large size of the Indian population. But it also uh, is of concern because those cases seem to be uh, spreading into uh, their rural areas. Um, Vietnam and Australia are concerned about uh, recurring um, outbreaks in, uh, in their countries. Vietnam really has been a model in how to deal with uh, with COVID, they've had small numbers of infections and deaths from the uh, the pandemic, uh, but uh, they're concerned that uh, there could be uh, indications of uh, a sharp rise of infections there. Uh, likewise, um, uh, Australia is concerned about outbreaks in in some of their big cities and and also in uh, in rural areas. So that's it on the on the COVID update, and uh, we're going to jump to uh, topic number two. Um, which is our uh, look into what's going on in, uh, in North Korea. Um, Breck, did you want to uh, start sure. us with a little, little background there? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, on Monday, uh, there was a confidential United Nations uh, report submitted uh, that Reuters got a hold of and uh, published an article about it. And that report uh, said that there were several countries that now believe that North Korea has developed nuclear warheads small enough that they'll fit on their ballistic missiles and that those missiles uh, could well have a range that could include parts of the United States. Now, in, in one sense, that was uh, no new news uh, in that uh, there was a United States uh, intelligence assessment, I think that dates back to June 2017, that essentially concluded the same thing. And since that time, we've had a lot of uh, think tank-like commentary out in the media talking about how the West just may have to learn to live with North Korean uh, nuclear weapons that can, reach the, uh, that can reach the United States. But this latest report again highlights a problem uh, that seems to have no apparent solution, 
and that is how do we convince North Korea to pull back from going nuclear? Now, Presidents Bush, President Obama, and President Trump have all said that uh, a nuclear North Korea is an absolute no-go, but here we are. Uh, Kim Jong-un, since he came into power, has certainly accelerated the nuclear program started by his father. Uh, I think uh, all intelligence services believe that uh, he has uh, workable, short, medium, intermediate, and intercontinental missiles, and maybe 30 to 60 nuclear devices, depending upon which intelligence re uh, report you believe. There's certainly uncertainty about how accurate those missiles are. There's uncertainty about whether Kim has warheads that are immediately deployable on missiles, especially on uh, ballistic missiles. But uh, at best, the world and the United States are on the brink of being under the shadow of North Korean uh, nukes. Now, since the early 2000s, the UN and the West have imposed various sanctions on North Korea. They banned the sale of arms and materials and technology necessary to build ICBMs. Uh, the West and the UN has authorized inspections of cargo bound for North Korea. There have been more recent efforts to limit North Korea's access to the international financial system. So the world has really tried to paint North Korea into this corner and to limit their ability to design, build, and test nuclear arms. Uh, but this has not been effective. And I, I guess in terms of why, and Dick and Pat may have some thoughts on this as well, but in my mind, uh, three big reasons maybe why all of this has not been very effective. And one is that sanctions are leaky in general. And connected to that, uh, North Korea's biggest trading partner is China. And China has been lackluster at best uh, in enforcing those sanctions. And it continues to have a reasonable trade with North Korea. Uh, UN experts said last year that North Korea, This I think this is a really interesting fact, that North Korea has been able to generate last year uh, an estimated $2 billion using cyber attacks, sophisticated cyber attacks, to steal from banks and these cryptocurrency exchanges uh, and generate foreign exchange in that way. And then lastly, and maybe most importantly, uh, Kim has prioritized national security and the development of the nuclear program uh, over the domestic economy and the well-being of his own uh, people. North Korea remains one of the poorest countries in the world, yet it spends a quarter of its domestic product uh, on its military. Now, President Trump took a different tact when he came into office, and that was a direct engagement. He and Kim have met three times since 2018 to talk about North Korea giving up its nuclear program in return for an end to sanctions and a lot of US aid. And when push comes to shove now at the end of the day, there's been little, if any, progress, and it's hard to imagine that there will be any significant progress going forward, given that Kim views, and rightly so in my mind, that his nuclear weapons are necessary for he and his regime to survive. So uh, where do we go from here? And I just to throw this out to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to Pat and Dick, if there is a diplomatic solution here, in my mind, it seems that it's got to go through China. And people have said that for a long time, and it hasn't gone through China yet. But if China really wanted a solution, uh, I think that, that was, that's probably the best way to get one that is diplomatic. Uh, and I throw out the idea that uh, if North Korea does, in fact, demonstrate an ICBM capability, uh, it may be the fact that the West and the United States needs to figure out a way to establish di diplomatic relations and make the best of a situation that we may not be able to change. But I throw it open to Dick and Pat for their comments as well. No, I think that was a, a, a terrific rundown, uh, Breck. I, uh, yeah. In terms of the sanctions, I, I, I think one, one notable uh, data point is that after the Singapore summit, uh, China uh, appeared to relax the sanctions, uh, betting that the, the summit was reducing tensions and would lead to a denuclearized North Korean peninsula. So they, they sort of jumped the gun on the sanctions uh, relief because they, uh, they frankly wanted the trade with, uh, with North Korea. North Korea is a, a storehouse for uh, minerals and, and other commodities that uh, the Chinese use. And it's also a market for Chinese goods. So um, uh, given the proximity of the two, they're, they're natural trading partners. But as it turns out, the, um, 
the summits uh, did not yield any results of uh, uh, the hopes that, that we had. And, uh, you know, I, I think if we recall where we were in 2017, after a couple of years of missile developments, President Trump issued a very stern warning to North Korea. You know, there was the exchange of Rocket Man and uh, what did they call Dotard? They, they called President Daughter. Trump. Yeah. Um, and then in, in 2017, President Trump shook everybody up and talked about uh, his quote was, they will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. Well, in, in the meantime, they've continued to uh, develop nuclear weapons, produce nuclear weapons, uh, produce uh, missile capability. And, you know, the, some people say, well, they haven't tested another weapon. They haven't been testing this or that. Uh, there was a CIA report in the, in the Times about uh, the, the time of the summit uh, that said that they didn't need to do any more testing. They had uh, met the requirements to uh, go into production on these things. So uh, here we are, what would you say, 30 to 60 warheads and uh, the, uh, this new report at the UN suggesting that uh, the warheads are now small enough to fit onto a, a missile that they're producing. So we're, we're in a whole new area of uh, confrontation. And I don't know that uh, the American political scene is appropriately prepared to deal with this sort of challenge. Oh, I absolutely right, Pat. I think you guys are spot on that China's the key here. Uh, the sanctions regime is not working for a whole bunch of reasons, but one, the North Koreans are very good at, at uh, finding the leaks in it, but two, China is not adequately doing what it needs to do to, to stop the illegal goods coming in. Uh, it's important to remember that the China is, sees itself, I believe, in, as uh, best served by a stable North Korea. Now, if that's a stable North Korea with nuclear weapons, that's not in our interest, but uh, Well, right I, think, now, I think China does, does not want to see North Korea with nuclear weapons, but they do not want to see North Korea fail. That's exactly right. They do not want to destabilize North Korea on their border with millions of North Koreans heading into China because they can't survive in North Korea. The problem with the United States and how we have engaged um, I think we kind of got taken to the cleaners in our negotiating posture, if you will. Uh, the North Koreans gave us nothing. They gained international prestige on the international arena. And all of a sudden, this guy, Kim Jong-un, is somebody that's the, the equal to the president of the United States. And they just merely went on their way doing what they're doing. The end of the story is uh, we drew a red line with fire and brimstone like they've never seen before. and haven't done anything about it. Um, yeah. On, I, on that bright note, maybe <laughs> we should move on. <laughs> hey, Ambassador, I have one question, if you don't mind me seeing what uh, your take is on this. Do you think there becomes a point at some time when it's demonstrable that uh, North Korea has this ICBM capability that the West in general and the United States in particular will try and normalize relations and gain some influence that way, uh, that uh, uh, North Korea acts as a semi-responsible nuclear power, or no? Um, the answer is, I don't know. Well, uh, it, it is equally as possible, I think, that some of the, the right-wing hawks will say, these guys now have the capability of hitting San Francisco and Seattle and things of this sort. And Nashville. And regardless of the consequences, we've got to take out that capability. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that is, um, that's that's a rough patch. Yep. Uh, even before, you know, they now have those nuclear weapons on missiles that uh, could be, even the short range missiles attacking uh, South Korea and Japan with a, a nuclear warhead, uh, it's, it's incredible to consider the consequences. Oh, and even, even before they developed uh, weapon one, their ability to wreak havoc on South Korea with uh, artillery across the DMZ. Millions would be dead. Um, it's, it's, it's a hard, uh, hard situation. We say yeah. that we don't want them to have nuclear weapons, but um, what, what does fire and fury mean? Well, back, back just very quickly to Breck's point, I, I think, you know, at a, there comes a time when you say, you know, as bad as my neighbor is, 
or he's still my neighbor and I've got to live with this guy. And so you try to figure out how do you do that? And that, that's a process of diplomacy and negotiation. And basically it means that we would recognize North Korea as a more legitimate state than we do now and probably start doing things like providing aid and economic support that we're, then, we're not doing that now. So that's right, it's a tough one. And uh, one footnote there is uh, North Korea, Iran, and Iraq were the uh, the axes of evil, um, and we uh, we set out to prevent them from having nuclear weapons. In the case of Iraq, we invaded, and uh, you know they at one point they had a, a nuclear program, but uh, at the point of the invasion, they did not. Iran, we negotiated a, a treaty to prevent them from getting a nuclear weapon. And we've given up on that treaty. Uh, so where they go is up in the air. But uh, North Korea took a cue from Iraq that uh, if you want to preserve your regime, uh, having a nuclear weapon is is not a bad idea. Yeah, so, absolutely. So here we are. With that, let's uh, move on to another tough uh, tough topic. Um, Breck, I think you're going to talk a little bit about what's going on with the withdrawal of uh, U.S. troops from from Germany, or um, uh, as Ambassador Bowers, who spent time in Berlin, might say, Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> yeah. sure, See you again. Us, I'll start us off. Uh, the Trump administration uh, announced last week that it was cutting the number of U.S. troops stationed in Germany by one-third from roughly 36,000 to 24,000. And uh, this move had been announced by Trump back in June, but the details were released last week. And that uh, reduction of 12,000 troops, roughly uh, half will be deployed elsewhere in Europe and uh, half will come home where they could be deployed to Eastern Europe or the Black Sea area on some sort of rotational basis. Uh, and then further as part of this policy, sh policy shift, there are two policy shift. There are two U.S. Uh, command headquarters, U.S. Europe and U.S. Africa, that are, gonna, that are, gonna, that are in Germany now and are going to be moved out of Germany. And uh, there's also, a, I think it's an F-15 fighter squadron that's going to be redeployed from Germany to Italy, I believe. So it's a, it's a, it's a big shift in uh, the, Amer the American military presence uh, in Europe in general and certainly in particular in uh, Germany. Now, the Pentagon put out a statement, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, put out a statement saying that this withdrawal, this reduction, would, quote, strengthen NATO, enhance the deterrence of Russia, and boost the flexibility of the uh, U.S. military. Uh, but President Trump undercut this explanation by almost simultaneously with the release of that announcement, uh, saying that this move was meant to be punitive. Uh, his quote was, this is President Trump, quote, we're reducing the force because the Germans are not paying their bills. U.S. troops are there to protect Germany, right? And Germany is supposed to pay for it. Germany's not paying for it. We don't want to be the suckers anymore. The United States has taken advantage, has been taken advantage of for 25 years, both on trade and on the military. So what's the, I mean, you know, what's the president talking about here? Well, I think that President Trump is referring to NATO's collective agreement back in 2014, where all 28 member countries agreed that they would spend at least 2% of their GDP on defense spending by 2024. And the US, by the way, roughly, I think its percentage of GDP on its aggregate defense spending is about 3.4% today. And I think that there are nine NATO countries that are today meeting this 2% threshold, and they are Bulgaria, Greece, the UK, Estonia, Romania, Lithuania, Latvia, and Poland. But Germany is not there. And its latest numbers suggest that Germany is spending about 1.4% or so, and the president is not happy about that. So my question would be, does the president have a point here? And, and yes, I think he does, that you know, Germany is the strongest economy in Europe and one of the strongest in the world. Prior to COVID, the German government was usually running budget surpluses. It can afford to increase defense spending, and it did say that it would, and the fact that it doesn't gives, gives cover to, now it did say uh, 2024, 
but President Trump is saying it doesn't look like Germany is uh, making much effort to get there. And by not getting there, Germany also gives, gives cover to other NATO members who do not meet the 2% threshold. If Germany's not going to meet it, the strongest economy in Europe, then I'm certainly not going to meet it either. So yes, I think Germany should be spending more money uh, on defense. And Germany's also frustrated American presidents, and not just President Trump, uh, but uh, President Bush and Obama, with its economic policy decisions that may be good economics for Germany, but that arguably diminish NATO security versus Russia and China. And the two best examples would be, the best example would be this pipeline that is very near completion, Nord Stream 2, that's a gas, natural gas pipeline that goes from Russia under the Baltic Sea to Germany. Uh, the U.S. and uh, Europe, some of Europe, is trying to do everything it can do to prevent completion. But, uh, and this was a pipeline that the EU refused to uh, approve and that uh, the White House and the U.S. Congress has been adamantly opposed to since it started uh, being built. And the reason is that prior to this pipeline, through other pipelines uh, from Russia, Germany receives about 40% of its oil and gas requirements from Russia. And Nord Stream 2, this pipeline that's just about finished, uh, may double that. So uh, 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 obviously the concern is by other European countries in the United States that that energy dependency over time will put Russia in a position of influence with uh, German politics. So we'll see about that. So uh, uh, there is this frustration with German decisions, and that may also be, be playing a role in the, Trump, in the Trump administration's decision to uh, withdraw troops. So I think the president does have a point, and other presidents would have agreed with him, that Germany should be doing more uh, on the defense front. And Trump said as part of the announcement that if Germany changes, if it increases its defense spending, well, maybe he will uh, rethink whether or not he wants to uh, withdraw troops. But his decision to withdraw troops from Germany or threaten to withdraw troop, troops from Germany, it seems to me that it's very much the wrong way to proceed. That it's a move that weakens the NATO alliance and only benefits those who would like to see that alliance weakened, which of course, among others, is uh, Russia and China. And I would say that outside the administration, the idea that this is a real mistake, that this, that this policy is a mistake, is in my view pretty much a consensus opinion across the American political, diplomatic, and military communities, including not only Senators, not only Senator Mitt Romney, but Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio as well, who are uh, uh, pretty strong Trump supporters. Most respected foreign policy think tanks, including the Council of Foreign Relations are against it, and several recently retired generals and admirals responsible for Euro European forces throughout the 2000s have come out against it, as well as conservative media outlets like the Wall Street Journal and the National Review. Now, many see this troop withdrawal decision as stemming from Trump's personal animus towards the German Chancellor uh, Angela Merkel. Uh, there's certainly no love lost between the two. But when Trump, back in June, first announced his intention to pull out troops, he didn't consult German authorities or even his own top aides, reportedly. And it came days after Merkel rejected Trump's offer to hold the next G7 summit at Camp David. And Merkel said she would not be attending because of COVID and uh, uh, travel restrictions uh, and so forth. The other thing I'd point out is that the German public has really taken Trump's decision as an affront. And I was reading one survey that said that prior to his announcement, uh, a survey of the German public, uh, how many of you think that the U.S. president will do the right thing regarding world affairs? And only 13% of the, the German population said, yes, we agree with that uh, statement. Um, so the reaction, why has it been so negative among even those who have generally been supportive of the president? Uh-oh. Sorry about that. So why has that this, this uh, reaction been so negative, even from the president's supporters? And in the small picture, I think the critics argue this, that Germany's defense spending isn't where it needs to be, but it's been increasing since the Russian takeover of Crimea. And then secondly, that Germany contributes in other ways to NATO beyond just its defense budget. And one of the thing, one of the ways it's contributed, for example, is staying the course on sanctions against Russia after its uh, egregious acts in the Ukraine 
despite the fact that that's an economic hit to the uh, German economy. Uh, and then the third cr uh, criticism would be that this troop alignment does not, it's not a, it's not a strategic troop alignment, that it's not going to result in quicker reaction time uh, by American troops in the result of, a, in the event of a Russian attack uh, and, uh, and so forth. So, but, the, but the, uh, the more important aspect, I think, is the bigger picture. And I think that those who criticize the president say that anything that degrades the relationship between NATO members degrades deterrence and makes it more likely that Russia will try and exploit tensions and disagreements uh, within the West. Uh, or, and I'm taking this from uh, a recent backgrounder I read, but uh, the stable and secure post-war world order, 1945 and after in the West, uh, was largely based on five principles. And those five principles were, one, Germany needs to be an integral part, West Germany in those days, but Germany needs to be an integral part of the Western alliance. Secondly, that there needs to be a robust and ongoing U.S. commitment to European security. Thirdly, there needs to be Western support for a liberal, free-trading, international economic system that everyone prospers in. Uh, fourth, that there needs to be, uh, uh, in the West, uh, uh, a, uh, uh, a promotion of democracy and an acceptance of common democratic, uh, democratic ideals as opposed to nationalism and tribalism that we're seeing a little bit of today. And lastly, these transnational institutions, uh, and in particular, NATO and uh, the EU. And Trump, I think, has done his best to undermine each of those pillars in ways that no other post-war American president ever has. Uh, and that comes about because of his policies for, uh, for putting America first at a time when American national security seems increasingly challenged and the need for a strong European alliance seems, to me at least, uh, increasingly uh, obvious. And this, truth, uh, this troop withdrawal seems just another step in undermining our relations with not only historical allies, but very important allies to our current uh, national security situation. And I've gone on a little bit, sorry about that, but I'd like to close my little part with a quote from uh, a uh, person, Andreas Kluth, or Kluth, who writes for Bloomberg Opinion. And uh, I thought that, that this was well said. It's uh, a couple of sentences and it goes, the tragedy for the world is that without the U.S. As, as its guarantor, the wider West is ceasing to exist as an idea, leading to global instability and, and anxiety or Westlessness. This West, admitted, admittedly a slippery notion, represented a community of nations that saw liberal values as worth defending in a pinch, especially against authoritarianism. Germans are certainly among those doubting whether Trump's America is, in that sense, Western. Let's hope the Americans stay in Germany and that Europeans reciprocate by doing their part in military defense, because otherwise it'll be the cynics celebrating from Germany's anti-American left to the autocrats in Moscow, Beijing, and elsewhere. So, Pat, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Sorry for running on a bit. No, no, that was brilliant. Uh, you, you covered all the bases. I, I don't uh, think there's anything more to add to the, the, the context of, of the withdrawal. I would note that um, when you mentioned that this was not a, a strategic realignment of the forces, uh, we, we noted previously in a news review that uh, the U.S. forces in Germany were not just there as deterrents against Russia uh, in, the, in the traditional NATO role, all that is certainly a, a, key, um, a key reason to have forces in Germany, but also they, that was the uh, launching point for operations in, in Africa Command and uh, across the Middle East and, and Afghanistan and elsewhere. So um, it's, it's a key infrastructure node in, in our military installations around the world. Uh, I would also note that uh, this this wasn't just 12,000 troops being withdrawn. They're, they're not all going home to the U.S. Some of them are being uh, relocated around around Europe. Uh, but they also moved the fighter squadron, the uh, F-16s, from Germany to Italy. Um, 
the headquarters of the European Command is being moved from Stuttgart, Germany, to Belgium. So this this really uh, shapes up as sticking a poking a, a finger in the eye of uh, of the German leadership, uh, starting with the no notice announcement it was going to happen, and and just the uh, episodical way of of realigning these troops. I'm with you guys. I mean, it is in our national strategic interest to have a presence and a robust presence that signals our commitment to, to Western European defense and values and to have that presence in Germany. It is the U.S. national interest to have this huge hospital in the middle of Germany to which we bring wounded American warriors out of Afghanistan and Iraq and other places in the world and stabilize them and keep them alive before we bring them back to the United States. It's in our interest to maintain a Germany that is progressive and full of democracy. Um, this makes absolutely no sense to me, except that our leader got mad and he said, I'll show you. Because yeah, this there, was there, not there vetted is... with anybody or cleared with anybody. This wasn't a long thought out process of let's rationalize the positions of US troops around the world. This was a one on, I'm going to do it. There is a lot of cutting off your nose to spite your face, but I'd also note that this just feeds into the uh, the wonderment about the relationship between uh, President Trump and President Putin. Uh, this this clearly any undermining of NATO clearly it meets the objectives of Putin uh, and Russia um, in dealing with the West. So since Helsinki, when, when uh, the president stood up and said he believed Putin over the US intelligence community, there has been this question of what's going on here? Uh, yeah. and, I, and I think a move like this just feeds into that question of people wanting to know what the relationship is um, on phone calls, behind the scenes. There's, there's something fishy. You know, and, and what, what for me in the longer term consequence of this, if, if, if I were a, a, an Italian or a Spaniard or a German thinking, well, you know, we have this thing called NATO, it's an attack on one, it's an attack on all, we can count on the United States to be there for us, I would really start wondering, can we count on the United States? And if we can't, how do we hedge our bets? What do we do? I mean, if Kim Jong-un can say, Having nuclear weapons is what keeps me in power and protects me and are my people. Will other countries start going, drifting down that path to maintain or to get their own nuclear capability? But it's clear that this is shaking up the existing yeah. world order. And it's, uh, in my view, not a good shakeup. Well, Dick, you, you, you know that this is not the first um, uh betrayal is too strong a word, the first undermining of the NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Article 5, the, the common self-defense agreement. It started a couple of years ago in this administration yeah. with, question, with questioning whether uh, I think uh, President Trump was in an interview and he said, well, you know, consider the case of Macedonia. The, those Macedonians are, are troublesome people and do we want to go to the aid of Macedonia? Uh, I mean, if, if you're in for a, uh, a penny, for you're in a for a pound. For pound. Yeah, that's right. Okay, uh, Breck, that was, that was uh, excellent. I, I really uh, got a lot out of your presentation of, of that story, but let's uh, move on. We have uh, more ground to cover. I, I will just mention that uh, the Germans, as, as one might uh, imagine, are responding. Uh, a couple of years ago, Merkel said that uh, you know, Europeans needed to find their own way. Macron uh, also said the, that NATO was brain dead. And in response to this withdrawal, the, uh, the defense minister uh, had some short words about uh, the US uh, troop withdrawal. Okay. One, one, one final optimistic note is that these things take time to, to implement. Uh, so it's not that you're just going to tell the guys, okay, pack your bag, we're out of here next Tuesday. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, January, there may be a change of administration. And then if there is, then these kinds of decisions will probably be high on the agenda of the other incoming president if President Trump is not reelected. Yeah. Um... Uh, Dick, we have a question in the queue from uh, Ambassador Cindy Corville, who was a guest uh, on the News Review last week. 
And she asked, what is the economic cost for this movement of US forces and establishing a force? What role, if any, does Congress have in stopping the move? Um, I haven't seen any lay, lay down of numbers. Breck, did you, did you see anything in? I, d I did. Uh, some of the media estimates were that uh, the moves might cost the U.S. as much as six to eight billion dollars. And to uh, Professor Corbill's uh, uh, or Ambassador Corbill's point, the Congress has to approve that money technically. And so there already are a couple of initiatives in Congress to gum up the works where it won't be as easy for the Trump administration to make these moves anytime in the, or begin these moves even anytime in the immediate future. Well, part of the deal too is that the Germans were paying much of the costs for the deployment of the US troops and taking care of them in Germany. So these offset payments for barracks and facilities and bases and things like that, they're all going away. All right. Troops coming back to the United States now, this is totally on the U.S. taxpayers. So it's going to yeah. end up costing yeah. more than it costs for us to keep them in Europe. Well, and, and wherever a squadron of F-16 goes, I suspect yeah. it's Aviano in northern Italy. Yeah. And they're going to have to pay for expansion of facilities and, and so forth. I think a lot of people don't realize that American forces, when they're deployed in countries like Germany, that the, uh, the host country underwrites, uh, there's a lot of assistance in kind for the... Uh, uh, the installation and the operations. So uh, yeah, there is some uh, some cost there. Ambassador Corville, uh, thanks for the question. And uh, we're glad to see you here again. Okay, uh, moving on, gentlemen, we have uh, another story, which is a little bit uh, uh, on on the same topic of, uh, of NATO and, and the reliability of, uh, of a NATO ally. And uh, Breck, you, you caught this uh, article in uh, the New York Times about uh, the relationship between Turkey and NATO. And uh, the story uh, starts, I, I would commend uh, this article in the New York Times uh, to anybody wanting to keep up with this. And the, the title is uh, Turkish, Turkish Aggression is NATO's Elephant in the Room. And it starts out talking about uh, Turkey escorting a, uh, a vessel accused of smuggling weapons into Libya. And it was challenged by a French warship, a frigate, um, and the ships all went to uh, the battle stations, uh, but the French frigate withdrew because they were outnumbered and outgunned by the Turkish ships. So that that is is kind of the uh, the context of this story about where Turkey fits into um, into the NATO alliance. And you can see here the uh, the relationship. This actually shows uh, Turkey related to European Union not NATO countries, but it, uh, it gives you an idea of uh, Turkey's uh, relationship geographically. And uh, Breck, I, I think it's important to note that uh, Turkey has, has been trying to get into the European Union uh, as, a, as a full member for some time. And it's, uh, it's been an associate member, it's been on the fringes and uh, never was fully accepted. The French blocked uh, accession to the European Union uh, a couple of times, um, but uh, now Turkey seems to be um, moving philosophically to the east and also politically to a more authoritarian government, which is anathema to the uh, the NATO agreement. Uh, so there's a lot of lot of things to unpack here, um, and and as as we note the uh, the NATO membership of Turkey stems back to 1952. And it was a critical uh, component of the NATO alliance during the Cold War. It was the bulwark against uh, the uh, southern flank uh, Soviet uh, attack into uh, Western Europe would have to deal with uh, Turkey and the Black Sea. Uh, so it was uh, really a, an important piece uh, in the NATO alliance. Um, Breck, did you have uh, something you wanted to add to that? Well, I would just say uh, not only and uh, not only was it uh, an important, really important piece to the NATO alliance, but it was in those days joining NATO was an important part of who the Turkish political leadership uh, wanted to be. They wanted to face West and not East. They wanted to be certainly Islamic, but a secular government with a secular economy uh, in sort of the Western uh, mold. And uh, uh, if that hadn't been the case, it's an interesting question to know whether Turkey would have been invited into NATO uh, uh, back in those days. But uh, 
Uh, certainly, Erdogan seems to be taking Turkey uh, in a different direction, and uh, it will, you know, and, and I guess five or 10 years ago, there were lots of questions about whether NATO had become obsolete, at least in terms of its uh, uh, Cold War mission. And I think that because of uh, Russian aggression uh, in Ukraine and Georgia, that uh, that obsoleteness argument is going away a little bit. And uh, it will be interesting to see as some of these Eastern European countries that have turned to Hungary, for example, that have turned to a more nationalistic political orientation in uh, Turkey as well, and more authoritarian in some respects, moving a little bit away from free media and perhaps free elections and so forth, whether uh, NATO can, uh, can or should encompass uh, uh, those kinds of governments when it, uh, you know, it did not want to do that in the past. I don't know if you all have a comment on that yourselves. Well, I... Go ahead, Dick. Uh, let me just jump in on, on a couple of things that, I, that are going on. Uh, Libya is a bone of contention because NATO partners are siding up on different sides of the Libya equation. Yeah. And, and that's creating some real tensions and problems. Um, and Turkey is basically out supporting a part that Egypt is not supporting, and then the Western has divided up on one side or another. So it's, it's a problem. Second thing is uh, there's some massive exploration and the, the finding of various gas and petrochemical pro products in the Mediterranean around Cyprus. And Turkey claims the northern part of Cyprus. They, they invaded it in 1974, if I'm right, with my dates. Uh, and basically have said, as far as they're concerned, it's an integral part of Turkey. The rest of the world have said, no, you just invaded that. It's not an integral part of Turkey. It's an integral part of Cyprus. And so how you draw the economic exclusion zones where you can go out into the waters and search for petroleum or minerals or whatever depends on that recognition of who's in charge of that territory. And so there's a big conflict between Turkey and Greece and the European Union and and Israel's involved as well, the whole literal along that area in the Mediterranean. Yeah, it was always a, an interesting um, dilemma for NATO to make sure that Turkey and Greece uh, yeah. did not uh, have a full-scale uh, general war between them. Uh, the, the battle over uh, Cyprus, um, and, and you're right, it was 74. Uh, I can recall sitting in a submarine off the coast of Cyprus at the time. Um, but uh, that's been a bone of contention. But also recently, and, and this New York Times article highlights uh, the contentions within NATO and uh, the, the, uh, the major issue in recent years has been uh, Turkey's interest in buying the S-400 anti-aircraft system. And this is an advanced... Uh, air defense system, surface-to-air missile system, and it would be integrated into the electronic infrastructure of NATO defense. And the concern is that Russian uh, technicians would be inside this facility and they would be tapped into uh, the NATO air defense system. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's been a problem. And They and, bought uh, it, haven't they, Pat? I believe yeah. they purchased it. It's a yeah. done deal. Uh, so that's a major issue. And there's also the, uh, the political side of things. Um, uh, you know, NATO operates, uh, everybody has to be in agreement on, on policy, so all it takes is one country uh, to quash uh, some movement. And uh, as, as the article points out, there was uh, uh, an effort to, uh, to get uh, closer to Israel, Armenia, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates, and uh, Turkey objected to that. So, um, you know, some of the things that uh, NATO would like to do. And in particular, there was uh, a NATO plan for the defense of the Baltics and Poland uh, that Turkey uh, had quashed because of their objections. Uh, we noted here in the well, news, in, news review- In 1952, that, oops, sorry, go ahead, Pat. Uh, the news review here, we talked about the uh, uh, abandonment of uh, the Kurds uh, to allow the Turks to move into areas in Northern Syria. So. There's, uh, there's a, a laundry list of issues that uh, NATO and the United States needs to work out with Turkey 
and Turkey seems not to uh, be ready to talk about those things. Well, Turkey internally has changed from the Turkey that was uh, our staunch ally in 1952 and fought along our side in Korea and, uh, in that war and has been yeah. a, a staunch ally of NATO for, for years and years and years. And now since Erdogan has come in, he has moved Turkey away from being the secular state, which it was uh, prior to him and has now embraced Islam. Uh, the latest kind of capstone on that is taking Hagia Sophia, which was, a, was built by Constantine, uh, 1,500 years old. It was a Christian church, then a mosque, and then a museum, and now it's a mosque again. So these kinds of, of issues are making people ask, is Turkey really reflective of the Western values right. which underpin NATO? And I don't have an answer to that because I think under Erdogan, they are drifting into a different value system than the liberal democratic system that we have in the United States and in Western Europe. Well, it's uh, another story that is unfolding in front of us and we'll, uh, we'll keep up with it. Greg, anything more on uh, Turkey? I guess I would just add that uh, uh, President Trump has uh, established some sort of affinity with Erdogan, although he's also, uh, as you said, he's also done the fire and fury speech, but he has uh, admitted admiration for uh, Erdogan's uh, strong mindedness and ability to get things done and so forth and so on, while uh, Congress and some of the rest of the of the Trump administration uh, relations with Turkey have uh, fallen to a low point here in the last uh, few months, I think. And uh, uh, there's such a, again, there's an inconsistency in our responses to a major foreign policy issue. And it seems to me that it would be nice if we got our act together and spoke more with one voice. Yep. Okay, uh, last topic, and uh, I, I think we're doing a little better on time than we've uh, been doing of late, fellows. Uh, so let's uh, just uh, close out with uh, uh, noting the passing of John Hume, not a household name, but certainly an important figure in the, in the world in terms of uh, bringing peace to Northern Ireland. Uh, he was uh, leader of the, the Social Democratic and Labor Party, uh, from 1979 to 2001, uh, a native of uh, Northern Ireland. He uh, was a co-recipient of the 1998 Nobel Peace Prize with David Trimble. And that was for his efforts in uh, bringing about the, uh, the peace in uh, Northern Ireland after uh, decades of, uh, of troubles in, in that region. Uh, of, of interest uh, in, uh, in, in his youth when he, uh, uh, was brought to a uh, uh, a meeting of Republicans, the uh, uh, the Irish from the South, who wanted uh, uh, to unify all of Ireland. In his memoir, he notes that his father took him to a meeting in the late 1940s. They were all waving flags and stirring up emotion for the United Ireland and an end to partition, he wrote. When my father saw that I was affected, he put his hand gently on my shoulder and said, son, don't get involved in that stuff. And I said, why not, da? He answered simply, because you can't eat the flag. And that, that was his first lesson in politics and it stayed with uh, him uh, all his life. And I was listening to uh, the BBC Daily News podcast yesterday, uh, noting his passing and uh, Senator George Mitchell, who uh, was the U.S. envoy to Northern Ireland and uh, contributed to the uh, uh, the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, he noted that uh, uh, John Hume was a staunch uh, supporter of nonviolent movements. He he, uh, uh, he was involved in bringing Sinn Féin, the uh, uh, the uh, militant wing of the Irish Republican Army to the table and got them to uh, disarm, which led to eventually to uh, peace in Northern Ireland. So we, uh, we note the passing of John Hume, uh, a, a great uh, proponent of peace in the world, the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize uh, and other awards, um, the Gandhi uh, Peace Prize and Martin Luther King Award and so forth. Uh, he, he's, he was named uh, Ireland's greatest in a public poll 
of uh, Irish nationals. So uh, a remarkable person and uh, he'll be missed as the, um, the work there in Northern Ireland is, is not quite complete. Gentlemen. I just throw out a last, last comment. You know, the geography plays so much uh, in, in these areas of conflict in the world. So, you know, if you go back, and you could correct me since a guy named Pat Ryan knows more about Ireland than I will <laughs> ever know. Um, but the British basically tried to conquer Ireland and they basically turned it into their own little manner of houses. So they had the big houses and the, the English did, and the, the Irish were working in the fields. And then the Protestant Revolution versus the Catholic Revolution. Uh, who, who are you going to worship and how are you going to worship? So what ended up on one island, you get about, what, four-fifths of it become the Irish Republic, and one-fifth of it becomes a province of Great Britain and, and basically controlled by the English. So this geographical island is split up because of the desires of one people and another people. History is an amazing kind of thing. So it's uh, the fact that now people are tending to be able to live together, although the Brexit inter uh, exit, right, Pat? Yeah. Created some stumbling blocks as to, well, who, who does Northern Ireland belong to? Well, the relationship between Northern Ireland and the Republic certainly was a key feature of Brexit, how to, how to yep. negotiate that, because there was a land border between the UK and the European Union, i.e. The, the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. So there were uh, special accommodations because the people in the North, uh, they had gotten used to the free trade and uh, no, no borders or barriers or tariffs or trade considerations uh, with the EU through the South. Uh, so I think uh, Northern Ireland was uh, as as much for the opening between uh, the UK and the EU along that border, and uh, and that seems to be the direction we're going. We're still waiting on a final agreement between the EU and uh, uh, the UK. You know, we've had we've had the Brexit, but the the uh, the final agreement is still being hammered still out. So we'll we'll see the where that goes. But I think it's a tribute to John Hume. He saw that. Uh, the economic relationship between North and uh, the Republic uh, was key in bringing the uh, the violence to an end. Yeah. Um, so we uh, we note his passing, and hopefully people will uh, will dig in a little bit to the history of that region and and uh, the source of the troubles, as it was known, and uh, the George Mitchell role in bringing about peace. Um, there's a number of great books about Mitchell's involvement. And I'm sure it doesn't take uh, too much research to find some good reading on, on how all that uh, played out. But yeah, fascinating history, geography uh, is, is uh, destiny and um, an interesting uh, topic. Hey, man, okay. I might, I might just quickly bring up if it's okay that- Yes, sir. Uh, maybe I mentioned this before. There's a great book that was published in 2019 about the troubles in the 70s uh, called Say Nothing. It was a finalist for the, the author's Patrick Keefe, who's a journalist, and uh, it was a finalist for the National Book Award, and it was on Barack Obama's uh, list of uh, best books of the year, and it is a uh, centered on a murder that this journalist uh, uh, thinks that he has solved uh, in Ireland during the 1970s, but building around it the story of the Troubles and so forth. And if anybody wants to read something that's a that's a fun read uh, about that uh, uh, time period, I, I would recommend that book. Great. A book I enjoyed was Leon Uris's Trinity. Um, mm. It's uh, it's a novel and it dates it, it. The scenes are set further back, but it does provide some context of uh, the situation in Ireland. All righty, um, Breck. You want to uh, take us out with the uh, the quiz question? Yes. Again, the question was: uh, the head of SpaceX, Elon Musk, recently tweeted support for a theory that this ancient site was built by aliens. And the answer is the thank gosh the answer is not the the, the one that, uh, that the ambassador had to pronounce, but the answer is pyramids in Egypt. All right. Again, a reminder: please uh, sign up for our newsletter at tnwac.org. Uh, you'll get the uh, weekly quiz in your inbox every Monday morning at 10 a.m. 10 questions, and um, 
you won't have anyone uh, like uh, Breck to assist you in reading the <laughs> potential uh, answers, but uh, we hope that uh, you'll do well in the ideas to keep up with what's, what's going on in the world. Again, we have um, uh, the Young Professionals session tomorrow night, uh, Wednesday the, uh, the 5th of uh, August, and um, we hope you'll, uh, you'll join it. Alan DuBose, a diplomat in residence for the South region, and uh, a casual conversation about uh, diplomacy. Um, that's it for us, uh, fellas. Thanks again for a great news review. Uh, we're right at an hour, so we're in good well shape. Done. Thanks, See you in three weeks. Uh, yes, we should mention that um, the news review will be on hiatus for uh, for two weeks, and we may come back on a different date and time. So check our calendar at tnwac.org/calendar and you'll be up to date on everything. Tonight we have uh, Carl Dean talking with Consul General Kayoko Fukushima, the Consul General of Japan in Nashville. And that should be an interesting program on US-Japan relations and especially the Japan-Tennessee relationship, which is an important cultural and economic uh, uh, set of ties. Okay, fellas, thanks so much. Uh, everybody uh, be safe and uh, we'll see you next time.